This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The local school district has been the foundation of the American educational system for 200 years. In 1920, 88% of all school expenditures were paid for out of local district revenues. Over the years, state and federal governments have played an increasingly important role so that today only about 45% of revenue comes from the local taxpayer. Another 45% comes from state governments and only about 10% from the federal government. Yet this could change dramatically if Democrats capture control of federal and state governments in 2020. Nearly every Democratic candidate for high office is calling for increases in spending by both the state and federal governments. Former Vice President Joe Biden wants to triple federal spending on low-income schools from $16 billion to $48 billion. Senator Bernie Sanders wants to use federal dollars to raise teacher salaries, spend more in high-poverty communities, and pay for special needs. The other candidates are not far behind in their proposals for a shift in spending away from the local school district. But are resources from higher levels of government as effective at lifting student achievement as monies coming from the local taxpayer? That's a question that's not been answered by scholars until perhaps the study that we're going to talk about today. And to look at that question, Carlos Lastranadon, a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University and an assistant professor at IE University in Madrid, Spain, Carlos and I have worked together to address that question by bringing together data on student achievement in the year 2007 with the amount of money that was being spent on schools by the local school district, by the state government, and by the federal government, and to check to see whether it made much of a difference, whether the money came from one source or another. So, Carlos, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. It's my pleasure as a long-standing listener to the podcast. Well, uh, thank you for that, Carlos. Uh, but uh, let's begin by telling our listeners the answer we found uh, to this basic question. Is local money more effective at raising student achievement than money that comes in grants from the higher levels of government in the United States? So in short, the answer that we find in our paper is that yes, local money is more effective and the, and uh, districts that have a higher share of the revenues dedicated to education coming from uh, their own sources, from local sources, um, are significantly higher, have significantly higher levels of achievement uh, in uh, math and reading in the eighth grade, which is the main finding from our paper. So how big of an effect is this? Um, so in short, it's uh, something somewhere around 5% uh, of our standard deviation for each 10 percentage point increase in the share of funding coming from local sources. So if you were to multiply that by three and say a 30% increase mm -hmm. in a shift from 
a grant funded to local funded, you would have an increase of 0.15 standard deviations in, in student performance. Now, I, I picked that 30 percentage points because it's the difference in the interquartile range or the difference between the top quartile and the bottom quartile. So if we shifted a pretty significant range, but a realistic range, uh, that would have a 0.15 standard deviation. Now, but this is one of those things where what in the heck does that number mean? Yeah, so education scholars uh, like to use measures such as standard deviations uh, for achievements since they can be comparable across different tests and across different contexts. So that 0.15 uh, of a standard deviation is roughly equivalent to uh, half a year's worth of learning too. So what the average student learns in half a year of education. So, so that by the time a student reads eighth grade, you can assume that if they were in a district that was predominantly locally funded as compared to a student who was one that was uh, in a school district where the money mostly came from the state and federal government, that there would be a half a year's worth of difference That's in right. what so they learn. So yeah. that they be they learn uh, to an equivalent level to having spent half a year more in school. Well, that's that's non-trivial. I mean, a half a year's worth of learning is is worth talking about, right? I mean, if, right. If, the if, few if, interventions of the we spend a lot of time in and in education. Next, you report on many papers who have smaller effects. So a lot of the interventions we know about in schools and so on uh, have sometimes much smaller effects uh, than that. So it's non-trivial. So now, but does this benefit all students or is there a difference between those who come from higher SES groups, parents with better education, more money than the disadvantaged, students from disadvantaged families? Yeah, Paul, and you've touched in uh, one of the reasons why this study is important, I think, because theoretically we may think that um, uh, intergovernmental tra transfers, such as grants from higher levels of governments to lower, uh, part of the goal is to equalize access to public services and to equalize uh, access to education in this case. So poorer districts that are not able to raise money from uh, local sources uh, may benefit from uh, transfers because uh, they now have more money to spend in their students. And yet, uh, maybe there's a trade-off between uh, using a significant, a higher fraction of their, uh, their revenue sources from from those high levels of government and um, and uh, using local sources that uh, residents may care more about in the sense of paying more attention to them or uh, being more aware or more on uh, how that money, how that local money is spent as compared to the uh, federal or even state uh, monies. Uh, so that is kind of one of the how that trade-off plays out is uh, a big reason why we think this study is important. And what we find is that there is 
uh, some truth to uh, the trade-off in the sense of uh, whereas uh, everybody uh, seems to benefit so poorer and richer students students on free and reduced lunches uh, uh, students from uh, more disadvantaged uh, groups and others uh, all benefit from from having a greater share of revenue coming from local sources it seems to be true in our data that uh, students who are come from more advantaged backgrounds uh, whose parents went to university who are not on free and reduced lunches benefit uh, more. So there's a greater benefit of this local funding for the kids from the advantaged homes than the ones from the disadvantaged homes. So local funding actually increases the achievement gap in the United States. That's right. It, it would, that's what we find in our data. Well, isn't this all just a matter of how much money is being spent? I mean, that, I can see a listener sitting there listening to this conversation and say, well, it's all uh, those local districts that are paying out of their own taxes are just spending more money on education because these are wealthier districts. So that's not what we found, actually. But could you explain to our listeners what we did to sort of address that concern? Um, yeah, so so we have several strategies. The more uh, straightforward one is to uh, statistically control in our regressions for levels of spending. Um, but also we um, try to uh, look at um, districts for who, for which um, that can be comparable to to districts with high levels of local uh, revenues uh, compared to others uh, who have uh, less of our local uh, local revenue sources um, through a couple of uh, strategies. Um, so we we in the first one we take advantage of um, the shocks to uh, local property markets in. Um, in during the Great Recession, uh, so or in the so in the in the coming to the Great Recession, so in the housing boom in the uh, early 2000s. So uh, because the transfers from uh, state uh, governments and also to an extent from federal government to uh, local school districts is dependent on uh, how much. Um, the these districts are able to raise locally, right? So if you uh, if your fiscal capacity is less, uh, then you expected to contribute uh, less um, to these uh, equalizing uh, formulas that most states have in place uh, for how much uh, what the minimum is that the the students should be receiving. Uh, so for that reason, uh, during a housing boom, what happens is if everything else uh, remains uh, constant, um, and we can talk about that, uh, but if, if other things don't change, you suddenly have more valuable property in the district, and so you deem to be capable to, of as a school district to raise more money uh, locally out of those property taxes. And in fact, uh, districts do right. They don't adjust the tax levels downwards as they may they may have done. 
uh, in these shorter periods of times in 2000 to 2007. So they suddenly have more local money, which automatically, because of these state formulas, means that they're receiving smaller uh, transfers from So let me just sort uh, of uh, emphasize that uh, point, because uh, yeah, the first point you made was, you know, every one of our analyses control for expenditure levels. So we're really not talking about how much money is being spent on students. We're talking about the share that's coming out of the local uh, fisc, out of the local uh, revenue, what the, the property tax is, is producing. There may be a few other things in there besides the property tax, but it's mostly the property tax. So what we're saying is that it's not so much uh, how much is being spent? We've we've taken that out of the equation here. We're looking at where the money is coming from, and then secondly, we're doing something else there. We're we're looking at uh, the effects of a short-term shock to the system in the period 2000 to 2007, when suddenly there's a change in property values throughout the United States as a result of this sort of a bizarre increase in the, in the in the value of property, which is a, sort of a precursor to the Great Recession. It's going to fall in 2007, but nobody knows that's going to happen. And in the meantime, people have all this extra cash that's come out of the increase in property values. But that's shifting the share because they're going to get less money from the state government and they're going to be generating more revenue out of their local taxes. So we, we look at this shock to the system to do a check on our original analysis. So we do an original analysis that just looks at the whole picture, controlling for expenditures, and then we look at the shock. And basically, we get the same answer, right? We do get a very similar, perhaps surprisingly similar um, answer. So the same, the same average positive effect of uh, local revenue uh, share on achievement levels and the same gradient in what the having a higher local share revenue does for wealthier and less wealthy students. So it, it, we, we get once again this, this effect that, you know, uh, everybody benefits, but the rich kids benefit more than the poor kids. Mm -hmm. So um, that it does add to uh, a greater inequality in, in student achievement throughout the United States. Now, um, there's one other thing that our listeners may be concerned about, Carlos, and that is it may be that all we have is just uh, kids uh, that come from families that have better prepared their kids to go to school. So if you've got a, a local district that's paying its own way, maybe it's the families in that district are just more educated and are doing a better job of preparing their kids for schooling. So how... What's the adjustment that is made in our data to, to So we have, um, so we use, which we haven't mentioned, we use these large administrative uh, data set coming from uh, the NAEP, which... Uh, the National Assessment National of Educational Assessment. Progress, right? That frequent listeners and readers of Education Next would be familiar with. Um, so that's administered to, to a sample of uh, kids in the fourth and eighth grade, we use eighth grade uh, test scores for math and reading. Um, and that, in addition to, uh, to administering the, the uh, 
disciplinary, the math and reading tests uh, comes with a few questions on the background of kid of the of the kids taking the exam. So uh, we able to to we have uh, a number of controls that we add to to to, to be able to compare um, test takers. Um, uh, across uh, who are similar in all the characteristics because the what we'd ideally uh, want to do would be to take uh, two twins if you wish two identical kids in the same grade um, put one in uh, identical districts just one with higher uh, local share of revenue versus uh, versus more revenue in the district coming from the state and the federal government um, so what we what we try to do to take care of individual characteristics is use the controls we have available in the NAEP exams which are um, uh, some some measures of disadvantage, such as whether you are eligible for free and reduced lunch, the education that your uh, parents have received, your race, um, so um, whether you are on an individualized uh, education program uh, due to some form of disability, and whether you're an English learner are the basic standard ones that we have, which are, you know, uh, not ideal, not everything that we'd want to control for, but a good set of, of controls. So, yes, and you mentioned something that we probably should have uh, emphasized from the very beginning. We're talking about a nationally representative sample here. We're talking about uh, over 140,000 observations in math and 160,000 in reading and we're looking at this uh, and, and this sample is the sample is representative by state and so we figure it's pretty representative by by school district and uh, other people have done the same so we feel like it's a pretty good way about talking about the United States as a whole we're not just talking about one state or uh, one part of the United States but we're talking about the United States as a whole uh, there's there's one thing that uh, we looked at, and that was we looked at uh, this whole question of if you live in a part of the United States where you have choice, where you can move from one school district to another because there's a lot of them in the, in the commuting zone in which you live, um, do kids benefit from that choice opportunity? And so uh, that's another little wrinkle to this uh, study that uh, I think uh, our listeners might be interested in. Yeah, so listener, uh, listeners may wonder, so what, what does this actually do to, uh, to the people living in um, higher local revenue districts versus others? What was the special mechanism that makes these uh, districts uh, be more effective than others? Uh, as you said, Paul, um, one thing we find that is different is that in places where um, where you both have a higher local revenue share of, of funding um, and you also have access to more school districts, so you living within commuting distance or more school districts, uh, our effects are stronger, so uh, students benefit more, which 
su which suggests that uh, one of the ways that these uh, these uh, local revenue share may impact uh, may impact uh, achievement may be that uh, if if this is connected with greater opportunity for uh, district shopping, then then that's beneficial. So, to the extent that you you have uh, you paying more out of your pocket, uh, out of local taxes uh, for uh, education, if you then then you're going to be more. Uh, choosy, more selective about what actual district within within your commuting area uh, you're going to send your students to, and then uh, presumably uh, that serves as an impetus for those districts to be uh, better at educating students. So, in other words, what we're finding is that one of the mechanisms at work here is that if a district is dependent upon its own tax resources, it works especially hard at mm -hmm. meeting the needs of the community if it's in a place where people have a lot of choices as to the school district in which they want to live. If they have fewer choices, then uh, that makes less of a difference whether or not they have uh, a local revenue uh, as their source of uh, funding for the schools. So, you know, all of this was done in 2007. What do you think, Carlos? Can we still claim that this is true in 2017, or is this a historical moment that's gone and passed? Um, well, so the we used 2007. Seven, 2019, I should say. It's 12 years since this was right. done, not just 10. So we use uh, 2007 data because we thought, well, we like to use these uh, sort of uh, this feature that we have in the years preceding 2007, which is this housing boom that happened that altered the um, the levels of investment uh, or the levels of funding coming from local sources versus others, uh, given the state formulas in place at the time. Um, but um, we we think that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of upheaval uh, in the years after that. So during the Great Recession, uh, there was uh, measures of uh, local uh, funding uh, would have been distorted a little bit by the special programs, uh, temporary programs that the federal government uh, put in place, and. Um, and they wouldn't have been very good years uh, to look at. Um, at the same time, I think we now, so on average, so some things may have changed now that we, if you wish, uh, back to kind of uh, equilibrium or normal levels of uh, local funding um, as to before the Great Recession. Um, we see that uh, kind of the on average the levels of uh, funding coming from the different sources haven't changed that much since that since that time. So should we do this study all over again now on the latest uh, available data, which I think would be from 2016 or 15 or something like that? Well, we could, uh, we could, uh, we may yet have to, <laughs> uh, right? If we're going to persuade our broad audience, but yeah, that is something we could do. Well, if we don't do it, then somebody else can do it. Somebody, somebody else. Can hopefully, do it. we've opened up a, a field of inquiry that a lot of people will explore, and uh, they'll probably qualify our findings. 
uh, but we think we have uh, asked a question that hasn't been asked uh, previously. Yes, we think so. And in fact, this is a question that you've been, I think, grappling with for a long time yourself. And, you know, one of the uh, your your uh, your kind of seminal contributions has was on uh, city limits, I believe, in 81, where we, you were tackling with this kinds of issues. So whether uh, what uh, kind of the distribution of labor in terms of what services um, local government versus um, versus the federal government and state government, um, uh, sh sh what that distribution uh, should be. So I wonder how your views have changed over time, if <laughs> at all. Well, actually, you know, uh, this was a fascinating study to me because I realized that when I said so many years ago that uh, local governments were very efficient at uh, providing services if uh, they went to uh, the people who were productive citizens, the people who were contributing to uh, the value of the local property. Um, that was a case for local government, but at the same time, uh, uh, if you wanted a redistributive program that met the needs of the poor, you couldn't leave it up to local governments. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that, that, that was uh, when I set forth that statement uh, 20, 50 years ago, however long it was, uh, the, uh, I got criticized uh, pretty heavily. Uh, a lot of people said uh, that's sort of uh, nonsense. And... Uh, but really, I didn't have much proof for it. If you really look at my, at the book that I produced, I had some some statistics in there, but I didn't have anything nearly as solid as what we have in this study. So I sort of feel like this is the first time this thing has been put to a test, and it was with some trepidation that uh, when we launched uh, our final analyses, checking to see whether or not this uh, finding would hold up, uh, on, the, on the multiple different approaches, I was a little concerned that maybe I would be proven totally bonkers uh, for, uh, for having put this idea forth. But thank you, Carlos, for rescuing me and proving that, or at least providing some substantial support for a claim that had been made some years past. Thank you, Paul, and it's been a pleasure working with you on this. Well, thank you, Carlos, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I've been speaking with Carlos uh, Lastra Anadon, a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University. And Carlos is also an assistant professor at IE University in Madrid, Spain. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.